This is the Horse Radio Network. What a beautiful day for horses in the morning. You are listening to the number one horse podcast in the world. Here's your entertaining look at the horse world and the people in it. I am Glenda Geek from Ocala, Florida. And I am Piper Clem from the Plaid Horse Magazine. And you're listening to Horses in the Morning on the Horse Radio Network for July 7th, episode 2471. Good morning, Horse World. Good Tuesday morning to you. And I do mean a good Tuesday morning. Well, if you insist on being accurate about it. You know, only somebody with perfect comedic timing could produce this much energy in one shot. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us on this Tuesday morning. Well, you might be asking, where's Stacy Westfall today? She's normally here on the first Tuesday of the month. We've made some changes here in the Horse Radio Network, and actually Stacy wanted to make these changes. She is now moving over to the Dressage Radio Show. She's there once a month doing the Western Dressage episode. So Reese and Philip do the English Dressage uh, three times a month, and then Stacy jumps in and does the Western Dressage, and that's sponsored by the Western Dressage Association. So uh, we really appreciate their support as well. It's the official podcast of the Western Dressage Association of America. And so that if you want to hear Stacy, that's where you can find her over there. Plus, she has her own podcast, the Stacy Westfall podcast. Uh, so that's pretty easy to find. And she does all kinds of educational stuff there as well. We appreciate her having been here for all the months that she was uh, hanging out over here on Horses in the Morning once a month. And we're, we're actually talking about several options for this spot. But in the meantime, uh, today I'm joined by Piper from the Plaid Horse Magazine and the Plaidcast podcast. You've probably heard her before. And we're going to chat about a myriad of topics, including horse businesses, what it's like showing in a pandemic world, and what the rest of the year is going to look like. Uh, And we'll look into our crystal ball a bit for that one. Uh, I live in in Florida, Piper. I don't know what the rest of the year is going to look like. (laughs) It's probably be shut down. Uh, so, so it's going to be a little bit different today in that we don't have multiple guests. It's just Piper and I hanging out and chatting. We never get to do that anymore. So I, I thought it would be fun. So thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. You and I don't get to talk a whole lot anymore. I mean, occasionally we force ourselves just to call each other and talk, <laughs> but <laughs> we're so busy. It's just, uh, it's been that way. So you just got done uh, teaching a class, right? Yep. Um, so over the years in the horse industry, I've really um, felt that there are a lot of things that pretty much everyone needs to learn, and there are no really places to learn them in ways that make sense. Um, and, you know, you see a lot of older trainers who ride incredibly, but like maybe never saved for retirement or people who want to go into different aspects of the horse business or just business in general. And um, but apply to our industry with our, you know, unique rules and customs and um, repeat business models and, and all that kind of stuff. And so I really wanted to kind of get into the nitty gritty business from um 
you know, from me, from someone who does it every day, who works with a lot of different companies, who sees kind of the back end of a lot of different companies. I've bought and sold a lot of different horse companies. So I've seen a lot of financials. I've seen a lot of how people run things. And um, and I really just didn't think we had that kind of practical hands-on thing. So um, my crystal ball was spot on last September <laughs> when I decided to do an online course. Um and I got some resistance of schools being like, well, real courses are in person. And, and yeah. now no one says that to yeah, me. Yeah, no one says that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no one says that anymore. Um, and so I uh, taught three courses this year at St. Lawrence University in uh, Canton, New York. And um, I've taught on and off uh, classes at St. Lawrence um, in person. and But they've always been business or science or not horses at all. Um, so this was my first time teaching um, about horses formally um, in the equestrian industry. And so, you know, we went with a lot of what the classes class wanted to learn. So there were three courses. One was about equestrian business. One was about equestrian um, English history, um, like basically after World War II to present, talking a lot about how the divisions evolved and why we have the horse shows we have and the heritage and, and those aspects of the sport that a lot of young people don't know and there aren't a lot of good ways to learn it. And then um, the third course is about coaching and mental game and teaching and learning and, and all the research on that that, again, is getting more and more popular with our industry. But we're not always really good about reading, you know, generalized sports stuff. And there's so much good research and so much good data there. So um, it was a little bit... Uh, <laughs> So a full teaching load is two courses in the format like this. And I taught three and all of them were brand new. Um, so it was a lot. Um, <laughs> a little prep really, there. A <laughs> little prep, a little prep. Um, and then we had um, guest interviews uh, with people from all aspects of the sport. And it, it was so much fun. You know, you think about the things that drain you and the things that fill you up. And this was exhausting and completely filled me you up. You even it was interviewed so me for that. Did you play my interview? Yep, I played yeah. your interview. Yeah. Yep, yeah. yep, um, for the equestrian business course. And um, they got to learn about how Horse Radio Network came to fruition because I think so many people see where things are right now with the Plaid Horse, with Horse Radio Network, and they're like, I want that, you know, and, and there's not there's not any good way to, to ask you how it came about or to find out how it came about. I can so tell I them shorthand. Uh, you can have that with about 10 million hours of work in 12 years. Exactly. Exactly. That's, <laughs> That's pretty much what I tell them too. That's shorthand. <laughs> well, you're so. right about equestrian businesses. We've had this problem in this industry forever. I mean, my wife and I started a tax shop. We didn't know what we were doing because there's not a you know there was no roadmap. <laughs> uh, and it, pretty much in my life, every business I've ever started has always been at the forefront of whatever industry it's in. So I have never had a roadmap. So for me, I think it's kind of I like doing that. I like being the first doing something. In a, in a particular industry. Uh, so for me, that's kind of been a, my motivator is I like kind of building it and figuring it out along the way. Because the, let's, I have ADD and following a roadmap wasn't good anyway. <laughs> so I mean, maybe that's why. Maybe I just didn't have an attention span to do it. What did you learn from the kids? The kids? What do you learn um, from the students? Not all kids, but... Well, yeah, actually, um, at my actually, age, everybody's a kid. So what did you learn from the kids? We had a lot of parents who oh, really? they knew nothing about horses and their kids started riding and they wanted to learn about the sport. Um, so I talk a lot about metagame. And um, to me, uh, 
So riding and learning how to ride better is the game and your trainer teaches you that. What I teach you is metagame. So if you think about it in, in a different context, so like think about watching Jeopardy. Jeopardy is ostensibly a game of knowledge. So the person who has the most knowledge should win, right? But not necessarily. The metagame is how fast are you with a buzzer? How much do you risk in the daily double? How much do you risk at final Jeopardy? That kind of strategy outside the game is the metagame. And so in the horse world, and like people who play video games a lot and stuff talk about the metagame all the time. Um, in the horse world, the game is how well you ride your horse. Um, and that's something that your trainer teaches you. And I'm not a trainer and, I, you know, I'm an amateur. But the metagame is like, how can you use your budget to buy of buying for buying a horse to get the best horse possible? Like, what are things like essentially money ball? Like, what are the things that the market values that are kind of stupid? What are things that you value that the market doesn't value? What are things that the market values that doesn't that don't bother you? So, you know, if you have ten thousand dollars to buy a horse, how do you buy the best horse with that ten thousand dollars? Where over the course of the year, are you going to pay more? You know, something like a winter circuit, people are so excited at the beginning of Ocala, you know, and they are paying, they want every, there's hope, there's dream, they're, oh, this horse might win it all this year, the prices are crazy in December, you know. At the end of circuit, when you're looking at a shipping bill to bring them home, <laughs> that's when you can get the best deals, you know, and so just like looking at the market and looking at the metagame, and, and there's so many ways that, that the metagame impacts business. So one of the things that I, um, all the, so many people come out with new products every year and they're great products. And we work with so many of these businesses and some of them are incredible products and they just can't take traction. Um, you know, they can't make traction. They can't get a hold in anywhere. And I kind of sit there and I'm like, oh my God, this product is so good. Why aren't the tech stores doing it? Well, if you look at the tech stores, the tech stores are extremely risk averse. And they have to be. So Yeah, because they're barely holding on most of them right now too. Yeah. Absolutely. So if you buy a if a pair of britches are two hundred dollars in the tax store, they paid wholesale one hundred dollars. And then the one hundred dollars is their markup. And in their markup they have everything, all the store expenses, employee expenses, if they're going on the road, the mobile unit, the vendor fees, the credit card fees, everything you can imagine comes into that hundred dollars. So then let's take another step back. So if they buy 10 britches at wholesale for $1,000, they have $1,000 in, in their wholesale plus all of their expenses. If you really do the calculations out, if they don't sell eight to nine of those 10 pairs of britches, they are losing money. Yep. And so what a tax store needs is that the tax store has to be to stay in business so risk averse that anything that they buy 10 of, they can for sure sell nine of and probably sell 10 of, not at a sale, not at a discount. And when you think about it like that, of course the tax stores aren't going to take risks on your new products. Of course they're going to be risk averse. And, and you know, we, we were in that situation. We were in that exact situation. What a lot of people don't realize, too, is that a tax store like that, uh, when they, they want to bring on an Ariat or one of the big brands in the industry, there's a huge opening order. So I remember when Weatherby to first came to the United States, we were one of the first Weatherby to buyers, and the opening order was something like $40,000. So that means this tiny little tax store has to buy $40,000 worth of blankets and you know everything else, and then just pray that you can sell them eventually. Uh, exactly. And, and, you know, 
but they've changed that a lot now because they're really trying to be more conscientious of the little guy. Whereas the the Dovers and the smart packs of the world and even the horse lovers and the state lines, they have they can afford to take risks because they don't have to stock as much. Uh, they're more doing more on-demand inventory because they can afford to put you off for a week shipping your product. Whereas if you're going into a store, you want it. You want it right there. So that's always been the dichotomy between online and brick and mortar. What, what, so I'll come back to my question. What were you surprised that the students didn't know? What were you surprised that they, what did they bring to the table that you went, uh, I thought everybody knew that. Um, I think just a lot of like what what they thought they needed, you know, some who wanted to be trainers and wanted to be all this stuff, you know, like they thought they needed to go to all the fancy shows and they thought that they, you know, one of the things that, you know, I'm sur- not surprised at, I guess, because I see it a lot is that um, people can get confused having a fancy or good looking business with having an actual good business on the books. Mm. Um, and so what is actually a good business on the books and what looks like a good business at the horse show might be two totally different things because what looks good at the horse show is having all the curtains and all the drapes and all the fancy things and every horse in a matching scrim and it looks beautiful. Come on, we all love it. We all love how that looks. But like, is that a hallmark of a successful business? Like, does that sell horses? You know, and, you know, if you have clients and that's what your clients want it could be a hallmark of a successful business but if your clients don't really care or your business model is making money on selling horses um you know a lot of people didn't know that board is a loss leader like most trainers lose money on board and then they have to make up that money at horse shows and horse sales um you know so like looking at stuff like that the other thing is like one of the trainers came on and talked about having a um, the truck and trailer debate, which I, I think is fascinating to the d- numbers on it. Everyone's business is different. And the point of these courses is not, oh, there's a right way to do things. There isn't a right way to do anything in this industry. The right way is to do the math, to do the numbers for yourself, to make the calculations, to make the decisions with education and with knowledge and with purpose. So this trainer has over 100 horses at his facility, and he only owns a two-horse trailer for emergencies. Um, all other shipping, he ships commercially. And so when he started running through the numbers um, of owning the exposure of owning the truck and the six horse trailer, and then when they did go to horse shows and they would bring 15 or 20 horses, how many trips he would have to take. And then because the truck and trailer were over a hundred grand, he didn't feel comfortable with anyone else driving it. So then he was making all those trips. So then he wasn't going to the horse show early and selling horses and making a commission. And then he's worried about the tire pressure and all this stuff. And he he was like, look, like when I get the commercial shipper, everything's done. The truck's up to date. The paperwork's all filed. Mm, like, makes sense, actually. Yeah. The horses ship better. You know, and he's like, when I look at my time, I'm not a shipping business. And so taking, he's like, I'm so much better at training horses and selling horses than I am at running a shipping business. And so by letting someone else run it, he has less stress. He's not losing any money. And, um, you know, his clients are still paying for shipping, but they're just paying, you know, an external service. And he's making up more money by having that extra day, not shipping on each end of the horse show to teach more lessons and to sell horses and, you know, to court new clients, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, again, 
am I saying have a six horse trailer or not? Like that's up to your business, but do the math, understand where all the numbers are, understand where every dollar is in your business. You know, if board is your loss leader and you lose, and it always you know, is, we had a boarding stable. It's yep. always, <laughs> yep. But know how much that loss is. Are you losing $50 yep. a horse? You know, are you losing $150? Because you have horse? to make it up somewhere. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Well, and, um, you're supposed to make it up so, somewhere. Um, or you go out of business. <laughs> you know, there's been an interesting TV show kind of surprised me that Jennifer and I have been watching. It's called An American Aristocrat's Guide to Great Estates. Okay. Uh, just look it up. It's I, I don't. I, it's on Discovery or one of those. Um, but it's Julie Montague, who is an American aristocrat who married into one of these great estates in England. And uh, she's a Viscountess now. <clears throat> and she travels around all these great estates to these what you would assume... I mean, these huge castles and the biggest homes in in England and, and Scotland and Ireland. And it's just incredible because she she's a Viscountess, so she gets, you know, these people will have her in, right? Um, and, you know, because that's, kind of, that's kind of world it is. And But it's amazing how they're all just living right now to keep those houses up. Um, so whether you're a duke or whatever status you are, your your sole purpose, and it kind of goes back to Downton Abbey time, your sole purpose is to keep that estate alive for the next generation and anything you have to do. So what she talks to them about, yeah, she takes you on tours of all the pretty stuff, but she talks to them about how they're making money. How are they keep? How are they paying the the one castle that was on last night was two million dollars a year upkeep. Well, how how are they paying for that? They have to cover that cost. So it was very interesting because they have budgets and they have budgets on how much they can spend every year on renovations and you know and these you would think are endlessly wealthy people, but they're not. You know, they used to be maybe yep. you know two hundred years ago their families were, but now they're just trying to keep this house from falling apart. Um, and it's just. It talks about the business side of that. For sure. And we yesterday on the podcast that we recorded, um, the episode's going to come out in August um, with Andre Dignelli. He was talking about Heritage Farm and he said it's a corporation. You know, it's run like a corporation. And, you know, and some of these big enterprises are, you know, gross an amount of money a year that, you know, many corporations would be jealous of. Um, and, and those large enterprises need to be run like a large enterprise. Like one of the things that I'm very happy to tell people is that when I, I became my own boss because I didn't want anyone telling me what to do. But what I failed to realize in the beginning was that meant I had to tell other people what to do. Yeah, I had that problem too. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, can't you just do your job? Like I hired you to do your job. Can't you just do it? Um, I had the I same problem. I'm a terrible manager. I had the same problem. <laughs> I'm getting better. But one of the things I realized is that I built, because every job at the company I did before we hired someone, because it went from just me to, you know, people, you know, in the beginning, I did everything myself, just yeah. like you did. Yep. So instead of building a hierarchy and like, uh, like a corporation would have, I, because we expanded one person at a time, um, the Platoris has never had any external investment. So it's like just, it's Us only too. grown out of money. We've we never had it. a loan in 12 years. Yep. Yeah. So I made this wheel, essentially, where I was the center of the wheel. So as we grew, like everyone came to me and relied 100% on me instead of making like a 
corporation and make like a hierarchy and a tree. So people didn't report to like managers or anything like that. Like everyone came to me. And then when I started to get a little burned out a few years ago, um, I had some health things and was traveling like crazy and just, you know, everything kind of hit at the same time. I, it was like, oh my God, the wheel just like broke because every spoke came right at me. And once one spoke broke, the wheel was done. So it really made me have to restructure my business. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, and I, I think this is actually a lot like the mental game and the sports psychology of riding. In a lot of ways, we think that the horse world is so unique and we don't follow any rules of any other or customs of any other, you know, group of people. But we do. We follow basic business principles. And more and more, they're doing research on like luxury research on luxury market economics, like applies to our industry and discretionary spending and repeat business models. Um, you know, if you have a bad interaction with someone like it's not always easy to like return your product or something like that in our industry, but you're not going to buy from them again next time. And that's what, yeah. that's at business is business. It doesn't matter what the business is. Ours exactly. is a little different because we're dealing with horse people who have an addiction, right? It's kind of a little different than somebody who just does something for fun. Occasionally, this is their life. They live, whether it's a backyard horse person or a professional, uh, oh, yeah. So that makes, <laughs> that makes ours different. That makes ours different. But it, and it's also the re, well, it's one of the reasons the Horse Radio Network was able to succeed because it is different and it, it relies on that kind of person. Um, and we know that that kind of person is going to consume everything horse. Uh, and I was counting on it, you know, someday <laughs> with podcasting that that was going to happen. But, you know, I have to treat the Horse Radio Network the same way. You and I have had this discussions about podcasts before. You know, I've cut podcasts that have, I'm sure listeners have been upset about it. I know they have. And I've had to make changes on horses in the morning over the years on the Tuesdays and Thursdays because they weren't profitable. Yep. Uh, you know, ultimately, it's a business. Yeah, we're here to entertain and have fun along the way. But ultimately, it's a business. I still have to pay the bills. And, and you know, we may gross, a, a, you know, a certain amount, but a lot of that goes out the door, just like any other business. So we have to take a look, whether it's bandwidth or whatever else we have to pay for. Uh, it, it, it's it's constantly a business decision. So Stacy moving to to dressage was a business decision. You know, yep. we both agreed on it, and it was a good business decision for her too. So, but it's a business decision. Would I've loved to keep her over here and keep her doing this once a month segment, which was very popular? Yes, but it's a business decision, and ultimately, it all comes down to that. So every new show we bring on. You know, it, it's a business decision. Does it make sense for the business? I would love to do. I would love to do about ten different shows on uh, about ten different things that aren't horse related. By the way, um, but it, it doesn't make any sense for business. You know, it it would just take my time away from what does pay the bills. For and, sure. And I think horse people lose sight of that because they like riding horses. That's the thing. You know, you, you want, that's what you really want to do is just ride horses. And you really want to forget about the rest. And you can do that for a certain period of time until the money runs out. Exactly. Yeah. And, and then, a, then, then all of a sudden it's, it's you know, it, it's not a good business anymore. Um, so let's change gears a little bit and talk about you just got done showing. First of all, were you showing your own pony? Your own horse? I was my own horse. Yep. So tell us about I, your horse first. Um, so my husband calls him the junkyard Ferrari. <laughs> um, and that's like the perfect description here because um, the junkyard Ferrari either falls apart or wins <laughs> on the track. <laughs> Is it expensive to repair too? <laughs> 
Um, I, I'm just, I waited my whole life, you know, I've saved up my whole life and I've never really been in the position to have my own horse. Um, I have ponies, I have my pony leasing business. And, um, so I got him, um, it was, it was a complete how horse deals work, not how real world deals work. Um, I was not looking for a horse, but, um, my trainer, um, Emily Alec, who I do the ponies with, I mean, we had done like over a hundred pony deals together. She's one of my closest friends. We, we work together on all kinds of things. She called me like early in the morning, one morning and which she never does. And, um, she was like, so, um, do you want to get a horse? And I was like, yeah, one day, like, sure. You know, at some point, like we'll get there. And she was like, how about like right now? <laughs> um, and she never asked me to buy anything. And she said it, he was the one and, um, he wasn't sound and he had all kinds of things going on. Um, and he was having emotional issues and he, he basically failed out of the, the A circuit. Um, and he just is a lovely horse. He is, he is a mover. He is a jumper. He is gorgeous. He won in the confirmations at Wellington. He's won hacks all over the country. Um, he won at the Hampton Classic, but he just couldn't kind of get from A to B. <laughs> you know, he, he, um, he's got a very unique personality and, you know, he's a perfectionist. And when things aren't going perfectly, he, gets frustrated really quickly and and it just kind of didn't work in a lot of programs. Wow, that sounds like somebody I know. Exactly. (laughs) No, he's the one. He's the one. Um, And we have this in common. So he'd never done an amateur before. He had only had really good people ride him. And, um, you know, it. um, Emily spent some time getting him sound. He didn't know how to chip or anything. Um, And she was like, "Uh, he needs some buttons (laughs) for you. Um, so she taught him how to chip and she taught him how to miss and how to be confident when mom makes a mistake and that mom's going to make a mistake and that's, that's fine. And so, um, he, he's just, so we really took our time. Um, I didn't even jump like a line with him for the first like nine months. I only rode him a few times and, um, Emily's just so good. She's like, you know, I'll let you know when he's ready. And I, I just trust her completely. And it turns out, so he, I'm the luckiest horse owner in the world and that he actually did not like wearing shoes and got more sound when we took his shoes off. So oh. he shows up every all the horse owner shows. wants that. <laughs> every horse owner wants that. So he shows at all the top shows. Um, he did five weeks of thermal this year without shoes on, which that's like hard and rocky and <laughs> everything. Um, he was probably the only horse in the, on the ground so that she's on and he was completely sound the whole time. Um, so yeah. And it's just been really listening to him and, um, and what he wants and he doesn't want to practice that much and he wants to show a bit, but not too much. And, and those, these all work for my schedule too. So, cause I can't practice that much and can't show that much. And so I just, he is the happiest horse. He is the kindest horse. I'm just, I'm so lucky to be around him. And um, so we showed in Kentucky for the first time last year, we did the pre-adults and he, um, the first round, um, like I just, I like came around the turn and saw the big one and it wasn't there. And he like totally bailed me out. And I was, I came around in the closing circle and he didn't want to leave the ring. Like he was so upset by he made- our round <laughs> that he was like, he didn't, like, he didn't, he didn't want to walk out. He didn't want to deal with it. Like he didn't want to emotionally handle that. He was so upset because once I like chipped and leaned up his neck and then I added down the line and then he was like, Oh dear God, this is awful. (laughs) 
What's wrong and with this woman? <laughs> what's wrong with this woman? And he came out of the ring and Emily was like, oh my God, you're the best horse ever. Your mother tried to kill you. <laughs> and he was like, he just looked at her and he's like, really? That's it? That's all I have to do? You're happy with this? <laughs> she was like, just bring your mother out alive. You're good. Um, God, those uh, horses are one in a million too. Yep. Oh, yeah. And so now that he realizes that, like, that was his, like, realization of what his job is. (laughs) To to, to keep you alive. (laughs) And as long as he keeps me alive, everybody's just happy with his performance. (laughs) So now that he's relaxed and he's not putting the pressure on himself, he's winning a ton because he's just, he, he's lovely. He just, that, that mental piece. Um, So. uh, Well, you showed him here last month, right? Yep. So I had not ridden or seen him or seen a horse since March. Um, I flew back from California. So he was, he went out to thermal with me and then he lives in Wisconsin normally. So um, he went home from the thermal circuit in California. I did not see him. Wait a minute. You sent him him home from California to Wisconsin in the winter? Well, it was like March. He spent the winter (laughs) in California. Okay. Okay, Good. Glad to hear Uh, it. Yeah. Yeah, he loves. He's got a huge paddock and ponies to play with and run around with. So, so what was it like? Where? So you showed in Illinois, Indiana, Illinois, somewhere. Illinois, Illinois. yeah, okay. uh, at Showplace Productions um, at Ledges uh, a week ago. So it was towards the end of my class. I felt like I had stuff under control, and I hadn't seen him, and I just miss him so much. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, I would say it was honestly a pretty normal horse show, except yeah. everyone was wearing masks. Um, and the most, the thing that was most not normal about it was not like really getting to eat together or, you know, having dinner with people, but, um, the staff, everybody wore their masks and was great. Um, you know, everybody kind of kept their distance from people, but with that said, people were trying horses. Um, you know, they kind of, it seemed normal. Like it seemed a little, Do you think um, that's because of the location? I know we've had some issues, and I, you know, I was told yeah. that the Kentucky Horse Park has war- had to warn a couple of shows that they were going to kick them yeah. out if they didn't start start improving. Um, and mostly, it, you know, it's the same thing that in general. It's funny how we mirror general society. It's the mask wearing, yeah. and you know, uh, I, the show can control part of it because they can cancel the parties and they can they can yeah. make it so yeah. that you know that at least on show grounds that they control part of that. For sure. Um, but, and in the office, they had like a plastic uh, divider between the office okay. staff. I mean, the office staff was also wearing masks, and they also put in a plastic divider so that you weren't breathing on them. Were there a yeah. lot of whining about the... No. I no. mean, people no. were just so grateful to be at a horse show, it seemed like, and be allowed to be out there. Um, so I wore a neck gaiter, and I just kept it on while I was showing, and then I could easily pull it up. Um, you know, because the hunters are like hopping off to like wait for the hack and like that kind of stuff. And it just seemed like easier for me to have it on and pull it up. And were they looser about the hunters or were they still all buttoned up? Oh, they were still all buttoned up. But, um, you know, some people asked me about judging and I thought, you know, Oh, like, did the judge care that I had the neck gator on? Like no one cared. You know, people just want, the judges just want everyone to be safe. Well, they want a job too. (laughs) Yeah. They, yeah, yeah, they want, whoever you feel comfortable being safe, they just, they want to judge the performance like they always do, and um, you know. Well, and yeah, as I'd we've watch. seen in a couple of the states, mine especially, uh, things could get closed down again, and that's one thing yep. the USEF has been very concerned about since day one. Yep, yep, and um, 
And yeah, I mean, in Chicago, like it could have gone, you know, people could have come out and said, hey, we're shutting this down, you know, so people wanted to wear their masks and, and wanted to be good because they want to be able to keep horse showing. Well, that, that ties into the next thing I wanted to ask you about. And that was uh, the US Pony, USEF Pony Finals. Kind of yep. give people an idea that, you know, it's huge. It's a big it's deal. So give, huge. give people an idea how big a deal it is every year. Um, so about 800 ponies gather for that week from all over the country. Um, some years ponies come from Alaska. Lots of years ponies come from Canada. Lots of ponies. Um, the ponies from Canada are not allowed to cross the border right now. So regardless of how this goes, there will be no ponies from Canada. Um, I would say a single, you know, I totaled it up and it's about $6 million in a single week's expenses at the very minimum Mm. being spent that week. And is that Um, at the Kentucky Horse Park usually? That's at the Kentucky Horse Park every year since I think 2007 or so. It used to move around, but it essentially got so big that it couldn't be moved around anymore because there weren't venues that could take it. I mean, 800 ponies and then having all those hotels and, um, all that is, is insane. Um, the cost breakdown, um, I normally budget around eight grand per pony. Whoa. Uh, yeah, it's, it's expensive. Um, you know, your office fees are running about a thousand dollars. Then you have, you know, tack feed stall splits, shavings, all that kind of stuff. Trainer splits, braiding, grooming. Um, even if you don't normally have a groom, the horse park is just so big that getting everything all around where you need it to be, um, you probably need help. I mean, a family could do it on their own. Um, but, you but know, you win so you, much money. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So now, much rivet. <laughs> so this is scheduled for August 3rd through the 9th in Lexington. Yep. And there's kind of a debate going on, but it's interesting who's doing the debating. Um, yep. so it's the, you know, it's the Disney world of horse shows basically. Um, yep. and, and you have a lot of kids and you have a lot of adults and you have a lot of support people and you have a coaches and you have all of that. I mean, it's just yep. a whole big thing. So yep. what, What's happening now, it looks like, I just saw uh, Chronicle had an interesting article about it yesterday, is the USEF is saying that this should go ahead. And the USHJA, the Hunter Jumper Association, wrote a letter to the USEF saying it shouldn't. So it's interesting to have these two organizations quibbling about this particular show. So can you elaborate on that some more? For sure. So USEF owns the rights to Pony Final. So to me... Um, like starting at the very beginning, when USHA was formed, they should have gotten all the rights to the hunter jumper competitions. That's the only thing that makes sense to me. But at the time, they didn't negotiate for that. USEF owned pony finals and junior hunter finals. And both of these are huge cash makers. I mean, the VIP tables at pony finals are $2,500 and they sell probably a hundred of them, maybe more. Hmm. Um, and that's just one thing. That's just a VIP table. So this is a true um, profit center for the USEF. This is a profit center for USEF. So since it's their horse show, since USEF owns Pony Finals, every piece of merchandising, every Pony Finals sweatshirt, everything with a Pony Finals logo, every entry, every everything you can think of, that money all goes to USEF. And same thing with Junior Hunter Finals. So the fact that USEF even owns those two things is like, Like, why even have USHJ if they don't own these things? So if you're asking, what does USHJ own? They own 
pre-green incentive uh, and the Green Hunter finals, they own International Derby finals. But like people don't buy a shirt that says International Derby finals the way they buy a shirt that says Pony finals. I mean, it's... No, because every kid wants that shirt and every parent wants the shirt. And And it's new people every year. It's new people coming to Pony finals every year. It's kind of like the Pony Club. It's kind of like the Pony Club Nationals. The same thing. Yep. Yep. And they're not new people coming to Derby finals every year. There just aren't. Um, so USHA owns like emerging athletes programs, some of these other things, but they don't own any like profit centers like Pony Finals is a profit center. Um, Do they my... control anything about that competition? USHA? Yeah. They have nothing to do with it. Okay. Yep. Um, so, and like someone even argues, so like they've, they don't even follow USEF rules at Pony Finals. So like they don't jog at Pony Finals and it's in the rule book that you need to jog. Like... <laughs> Like, there, there are USEF rules that they don't follow at Pony Finals. So it, it's the whole thing is, like, it's about money. Um, and it's great because it's a great experience for kids, and it is a great place to see everyone and have that level of competition. And I really believe in Pony Finals because, you know, qualifying for Devon or Indoors takes your top 15 shows. So if you're talking about back of the envelope, three grand per A show, and it could easily be much more than that um you know your top 15 shows well you're going to need 20 shows (laughs) to get your top 15 points that high like very best case scenario not counting cost of pony not counting board not counting any of your base lessons any of your basic expenses it costs 60 grand minimum to qualify for devon and indoors and you know a lot of families it's way closer to 100 grand Mm. and so Pony Finals, you can qualify in one show. And so I think Pony Finals is the biggest equal opportunity championship we have in our entire sport. Because you can do local shows all year and go to one horse show and qualify, especially on a green pony, and get to go to Pony Finals. And you see those kids, and they beat the pants off of kids who show rated all the time. Sometimes. Not all the time, but they have a shot. They can go out there, and they can have their shot, and they can have their day, and that's why I believe in Pony Finals so much. I think it's the biggest equal opportunity championship we have anywhere in hunter-jumper sport. And pretty much nothing anyone says can convince me otherwise of that. I mean, (laughs) I see evidence year after year of kids finding opportunity and finding their path and finding their way at Pony Finals. And I, I think it's fabulous. But, you know, then we're dealing with all of the adults and all the economics. So, a lot of people sell a lot of animals at pony finals. People lease ponies just for the week. Um, people will spend up to $25,000 for a week lease to get a pony that will do well at pony finals for their kid just for that week. Um, and so you have all of these other business deals going on that USEF is not part of, but they know exist and they know they're part of it. So we have lots of people leasing ponies for the three weeks, the two weeks at Kentucky the Kentucky Summer Horse Show, the Kentucky Summer Classic, and then Pony Finals. So leasing a pony for all those three weeks makes a lot of sense. Um, Your kid gets one more to ride. They get one more to do Pony Finals on. So leasing the pre-qualified pony, buying the pre-qualified pony. These are all parts of the business and the industry, the metagame in the sport, if you will, that USEF is not involved in, but a lot of people are. To me, the big issue is they should have canceled this in April. Like, it is... Not like, responsible like, most kids. Kids. I mean, like most of the big shows did. Like most of the big shows. And are still doing. Every, yeah. yeah. 
like, so Hampton Classic, the shows with the big sponsors were canceled months out. Hampton Classic canceled months out. Devin canceled really early. Spruce Meadows, I think, was the first pe- to cancel. And people ask, and, and I've seen this on post on Facebook, people ask, why are they canceling so early? Well, it's because they have huge deposits and huge commitments they have to make that early. Yep. So exactly. you know, most of the podcasting conferences have been canceled, even the ones in October and November, because yep. they have yep. to put those deposits down now. And we're talking yeah. tens, you know, or if not hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the size of the conference or the show. So you have to cancel that. It's a reason that they cancel early. And because a lot of times those hotels or whatever, the grounds and yep. all of that stuff, it's not refundable. So you have to, you, you just have to make that decision early enough. Plus, there's a hell of a lot of time that goes and money. Time is money that goes into planning, even if it's with the volunteers or whatever for these kinds of shows, uh, you know, up to a year ahead of time. And you don't want to waste those resources either. So, uh, it's for a, sure. you know, and so. what the problem is, they're too far into this one now. They, they've spent yeah, that and, money. And exactly. <laughs> That's- exactly. And also, like, lots of people have contracted for a pony for those three weeks and paid for the pony to lease her pony finals. Like we put out a pony issue every year at pony finals. Lots of people have bought ads for that. You know, like they, your ad price is not necessarily about even being at pony finals. Your ad price is about the designer and the layout and the print costs and all these things that we've already paid out now. So it's not like I can go give everyone's money back, you know, if pony finals doesn't happen because I've already paid out, you know, my heart, you know, I just, I feel like by not making the decision, early it's they don't really have a choice now other than to run it but like it and i will say that the kentucky horse park is huge and stabling is really spread out and if one place could do it it is kentucky you know they're putting the ponies in the rolex arena this year instead of the walnut ring so that people can be more spread out around the outside they're going to limit the number of people there they're limiting the parties, you know, they're doing everything they can and everything to be safe. And I hear the argument all the time that other horse shows are happening every weekend. Like, how is this different? And I agree. It's not really different. I would just say that the big difference is that people are coming from so far away. And I also hear the argument that people are doing that now. The shows were shut down in California and we saw Californians show up in Illinois and and Wellington. And, um, you know, one of our clients lives in um, Oklahoma and showed up at Saratoga because it was in New York because it was the closest show to them to get points. Like, you know, our people are already like showing up all over the country. So, you know, maybe it's not any different than what's going on. But, you know, I, I think at this point, whether they should or shouldn't have listened or who has the power, I mean, ultimately, whatever USHA wants to say, it is Yusef's decision. They own it. And as of this point, it's going ahead. Now, I'm just looking at Kentucky numbers here. And, of course, the virus doesn't care about all of this. Let's just make that clear. I've been saying that since the beginning. It really doesn't care what we think or what our political leanings are or anything. It doesn't care. So, um, I and Governor Bashir of Kentucky has been fairly conservative uh, over this time um, and has been really cognizant of of opening and closing and over that now their numbers have started to go up like most places uh i think there's only like 10 states that haven't um and especially over the last week or two their numbers have started to rise so you know over the next month who knows because it's a month away uh and you're right the other part of the problem is like if you know right now floridians can't go to new york 
you know, we can't right. without 14 days in quarantine and, you know, or, or Connecticut or New Jersey. And I think that's just what's complicating this whole thing. Like right now, our professional riders, hunter jumper people that would normally be going to Europe can't, <laughs> you know, uh, they're, they're barred from travel. So it's, it's just so complicated right now. So the other argument, if you take the other side of it is, well, whoever can get here can get here. If we don't have 800 this year, maybe we'll have, you know, 500 and that's okay for the 500. Yeah. And they already have over 500 entries and the two weeks before, um, the Kentucky summer and the Kentucky summer classics sold out, um, three months ahead. I mean, they, they were both sold out a month ago. Um, those are just regular horse shows. They're, they're double a big horse shows, but you know, to sell out at the Kentucky horse park is, you know, that's a lot of people raring to go signed up to go ready to go. At, at USHJA, um, I was reading, you know, part of what, uh, uh, let's see, Robin Greenwood, who heads the, is she president? Is that what it is? Oh, uh, God, no. Um, Mary Babbick is a president, and she needs to go. Our sport would be so much better if Robin was president. <laughs> Who's Robin, then? Is she communications or um, something? She's on, nope, she's on the committee. So okay. she's on the committee that voted to not have it. And, and, and I think they the, chose not to listen to them. They're worried about optics. You know, that's yep. basically what they're worried about. Plus, you know, she, her point was that this is a huge social event, just like just like Pony Club. Uh, Pony Club Nationals uh, is a huge event, which they did cancel this year. But it's a huge event, and it's, it's social. And how are you going to keep 600 kids from not, you know, hugging and hanging out? I agree. Uh, and that's, that's her point. Now, it's going to be interesting to see too what happens if Kentucky's numbers start to do what Florida numbers are doing. You know, or, you know, our governor, who's Republican, has decided we're not going to do anything. Who cares? You know, whatever. Y'all can get sick. Um, and then if you got Bashir's not that way though. That's not how he feels. So you know, he may change course, and it may be canceled at the last minute. We don't know uh, because we don't know what the, what's going to happen. Uh, for sure. Interesting. Absolutely. It's been interesting to uh, thank you for explaining that because I didn't quite understand the relationship there. Um, and of course, who knows? Again, that come back to Chris of all time. Who knows? You know, uh, at this yeah. at this rate, the way this year is going. <laughs> By the way, uh, uh, auditors, hang on a little bit after the show. We're going to just talk about one or one more thing here, and then we'll we will have a post show with uh, Piper and I hanging around. There's something I have to I have to give you a warning about that uh, my brother called me about, and he's the one that had called me at the very beginning of COVID when we started warning the horse world first about it. So I got more great news for you after the show. Um, my brother only brings bad news, by the way, when he calls. So. <laughs> um, so what does it look like? Well, we talked a little bit about this already. What's it look like from now on? Well, it's interesting. Who knows in Florida, right? I mean, everybody comes here in Florida. The way we're going, you know, Miami's closed again as of, uh, you know, as of Wednesday, tomorrow. All the bars and restaurants, all the gyms, everything's closed again because it's starting to look like New York was down there. Their yeah. hospitals are full. It's a problem. Uh, Palm Beach, where Wellington is, you know, uh, the county there, is probably one of the worst hit in, in the whole state. Uh, their hosp- I talked to somebody who was a nurse down there, and their hospitals are filling up. They extended their ICU. They made it three times the size, and it's full. They're starting to transfer people out to outer lying hospitals now. Uh, you know, people think that people aren't getting sick. 
less people are dying, and I think that number is going to start to go up now because of time, but um, people are are still getting sick. And what's happened now in, we haven't talked about this a whole lot, in because everybody argues about everything, but this is just a fact. Uh, in Arizona and Texas and Florida, what we're seeing is it used to be that only people in the hospital, whether it was ICU or just in the hospital, were over 60 years old. Now, 50 to 60% of the people in those three states that are in the hospital are from age 20 to 50. So it's a much younger crowd that is getting really sick. Um, it, you know, they may not be dying, but they're in the hospital and they're taking up beds and they're taking up ICUs. And they they said 30% of the people now on ventilators are under the age of 50 which wasn't happening before. And I think that's partly because of numbers. Less younger people were getting sick, and now just more of them are getting sick, and it's just a numbers game, right? So, uh, so you know, when we see coming into the fall here, Lord knows where what shape Florida is going to be in and whether they'll even be able to do shows here uh, or whether riders will want to come to Florida. That's going to be the other thing. You know, if we're hitting 10, 20, 10, 15,000 a day here now, if we're hitting 20, 25,000 a day then and the hospitals are full, riders aren't going to want to come to Florida. <laughs> so well, and I think we don't know what's going biggest, to happen, right? Yeah. And that's the biggest thing. So on the hunter jumper calendar, indoors is a really big deal. Um, Capital Challenge, um, which is arguably part of indoors or not, and then the three crown jewels of indoors are Pennsylvania National Horse Show, Washington International Horse Show, and the National Horse Show that's now in Kentucky. And um, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania has a USEF medal final, Washington has the Washington final, equitation final, and the National Horse Show has the McClay finals. So like those are, you know, you age out of those. Those are for junior riders only. They're for 17 and under. Like some kids, this is their last year. This is their last shot. Um, they are a big deal. There are almost 300 people do medal finals every year. Um, it, you know, those horse shows are not sure that they can go indoors. They started looking for other options. They started talking about Florida. Um, the problem is, is that all um, three of those are on the Longines tour and Wellington obviously is a Rolex facility. So that's going to be a non-starter. <laughs> Wait, we've ran into that one a few times in the past. Yep. <laughs> yep. So that's a non-starter unless they separate hundreds of the jump- and jumpers from the equitation. Um, is It's called indoors. So like, um, you know, <laughs> does doing it in Wellington outside count really for indoors? Like, um, you know, I and, and again, Florida is not so the place earlier. anybody wants to come right Florida now. Florida is not the no. place that anyone wants to come right now. <laughs> um, so I think there's so many things going on, and, and the horse shows are looking at doing what's best, and um, and everybody is working together, and everybody's communicating. So I think that's huge. Um, but yeah, I, I don't. I don't see indoors being moved to Florida as a solution given the, you know, rates of COVID right now that we're seeing, you know, and, and Kentucky is, um, I, I will clarify cause I've been looking every day. Um, Kentucky is holding steady with the same number of cases every day. So the number of cases per day is not, has not been going up. So are they increasing a number of cases? Yes. Like they're day to day having roughly the same number of cases today as yesterday, but they're not having more cases today as yesterday. Yeah, Florida's like having floor, like crazy yeah. more yeah. cases today yeah. than yesterday. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, again, crystal ball on all of that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who knows? It's been a year. 
Uh, I wanted yeah. on that note. I wanted to say that tomorrow on Horses in the Morning, Jamie and I we're going to kind of do we're going to do our normal health segment at the beginning of the show, but then the rest of the show is going to be a little different. Uh, one of our favorite guests that we've had on over the last 2,500 episodes has been Charlie Daniels. He joined us for one of our radiothons. He was so much fun off air and on air. Uh, Lisa Waisaki, who co-hosts here occasionally, and you know her, she's an author and and uh, pretty popular with our audience. She met him many times. Um, she knew him personally, been to the branch and written stories about him, written a book and all of that. So she's going to come on and talk about Charlie and what he was like as a person. And then we're going to replay the interview that we did with him back at Radiothon many years ago. It's one of our first interviews. Uh, and we're going to replay that. So it's going to kind of be a Charlie Daniels tribute tomorrow on the show. Uh, he was a huge horse guy all his life, had a big ranch, and uh, uh, from all accounts was just a super nice guy. Uh, so we're, that's what we're going to do. It's going to, going to, so if you're not a Charlie Daniels fan or don't want to hear any of that, tune out of tomorrow and come back Friday. But uh, that we decided because he affected us so much and, and we loved having him on so much that we thought we would uh, do that on tomorrow's show. Last time I saw him, Piper, we were traveling in Nashville and we, my whole family, we were having kind of a family reunion and we decided, none of us are big country music fans, but we decided we're in Nashville, we have to go to the Grand Ole Opry. Uh, plus I was kind of interested in radio, so I'm going to see how that worked because it is a radio show that they do. Um, and it, their new theater was under construction, so we went to the old Ryman Theater, the original. And it, the, the the seats are awful. They're pews out of a church from like the 1800s. <laughs> Just terrible. Uh, and they had all these really old, 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 old country guys uh, and girls on singing, and it was just boring. I, I was bored. Uh, and then Charlie Daniels came on, and oh my God, it was just like a completely different show. And he played several uh, he played several songs, and it, the whole place just lit up. So it was one of my fond memories as I got to see him at the Grand Old Opry. Uh, and we were sitting like three rows at back. Uh, so it was it was fun to see him there. But that'll be tomorrow's show, and we'll, we'll talk more about that and... Uh, uh, Charlie is a horse person, too. So that'll be on tomorrow's show. But in the meantime, where can people find your show? They can find us on the Horse Radio Network. Um, we are on the app, and um, the platthorse.com slash listen has everything. Yep, and it's a podcast. You can search for that on any podcast player. Uh, you can find it wherever you get your normal podcasts, and uh, they have all kinds of interesting guests uh, and cool things going on over there. And you, you guys are four years now. Yep, we are four years in, so we're uh, closing in on two hundred episodes, which makes you uh, in the top two percent of the longest running podcasts. By the way, because most don't make it four years. <laughs> <laughs> As a matter of fact, almost none make it for you. So good job. Congratulations. Thank you. Well Thank done. You. Well, this has been fun. It's been fun catching up. We never get to do this. So this has been fun. Absolutely. I, I don't know if anybody yeah. else enjoyed it, but we had fun. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first step, right? <laughs> That's right. So hang on, auditors. We will be back with you right after we play the closing music. Music. 